back a few months ago when we were studying the qualifications of an elder, uh, I was assigned the quality that an elder should be not a lover of money and not greedy for gain. And in that study, I mentioned that throughout both the Old and New Testaments, we read of several supposed men and women of God who succumbed to greed. It may have just started out as a condition of the heart, the love of money, but as the Bible teaches, heart conditions can eventually lead to actions. And that's why Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 that the love of money was the root of all kinds of evil. He said that it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows, 1 Timothy 6 and verse 10. And if we wonder what that may look like, well, as I said, the Bible gives us several examples. Now, in our eldership study, I didn't have time to go into those examples in detail, and so I thought tonight for a little while we would circle back and notice some of those stories and what we can learn from them about the high price of greed. First example that I want to notice is that of Balaam. His story is found in Numbers 22 through 24. You probably remember him best uh, from his conversation with the world's first, and to my knowledge, the world's only, talking donkey. What you might not remember is why that donkey was talking and what transpired afterward. In Numbers 21, Israel sent word to the king of the Amorites to ask permission to pass through his territory. And not only did he refuse, but he attacked them. And God helped Israel to defeat the Amorites, quite handily in fact, and possess their land. And so in Numbers 22, we find Balak, who was king of the Moabites, he was afraid that Israel would do the same to him. And so he sends messengers to Balaam, who apparently was a prophet, although not an Israelite, uh, but they asked Balaam to pronounce a curse on Israel. That night, God asked Balaam, who are these men with you? And when Balaam explains, God says, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. Pretty plain, wasn't it? Well, old Balaam told the men the next morning that the Lord would not let him go with them. They went back and told King Balak, who sent back more highfalutin men, as we might say, offering to honor Balaam with whatever he asked. Balaam already knew God's answer. But instead of refusing, he told these messengers to spend the night, once again, and that he would ask the Lord again. This time, God said, go, but only speak what I tell you. But apparently, that didn't sit well with God, how Balaam would not take no for an answer. And so the next morning, Balaam saddled up his donkey and went with these princes of Moab. But the angel of the Lord was waiting for him, standing in the way with a sword drawn. Balaam couldn't see him. He was hidden from Balaam's sight, but the donkey could. And so she turned off the path and into a field. Balaam struck the donkey and turned her back, but the angel was there waiting again. This time the donkey pushed against the wall and, and crushed Balaam's foot. So he struck her again. And once more the angel st stood in the way, and this time the donkey just lay down under Balaam. And Balaam was so furious that he struck the donkey with his staff this time, the donkey spoke to him. She said, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? 
<laughs> Apparently, old Balaam was so mad that he didn't even realize he was talking to a donkey because he just carries on the conversation right back with her. And he says, because you've made a fool of me. In fact, if I had a sword, I would kill you. The donkey responded, have you not ridden on me all your life? Have I ever treated you this way? Balaam admitted no. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and he saw that angel and he repented of the way that he treated the donkey and supposedly repented of uh, not trusting in God's will. But unfortunately, that's not the end of the story. The angel tells Balaam to go on with Balak's men, but once again to only speak what the Lord tells him. And what follows in chapters 23 and 24 is a series of at least three times that Balak asked Balaam to inquire of the Lord to curse Israel, followed by Balaam actually pronouncing a blessing on Israel instead. And in the end, Balak appears to just throw up his hands and send Balaam home. And so we think everything turns out fine. Then you turn the page to chapter 25. And in the first verses of chapter, or first three verses rather, of chapter 25, we read, Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. And that led to 24,000 Israelites dying in a plague. Now, we may be wondering, what does this all have to do with Balaam, and where does greed come into all of this? Well, it takes a little bit of piecing together. We actually have to turn to the New Testament to get some of the clues. But apparently, Balak, king of the Moabites, was responsible for Israelites for the Israelites' harlotry and idolatry. Apparently, he introduced them to these Moabite women who in turn led them to sin. Guess who put that idea into King Balak's head? It was Balaam. In Revelation 2... Verse 14, Jesus is speaking there to the church at Pergamos, and he wrote, But I have a few things against you, because you have there you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. It was Balaam's idea that told Balak to tempt the children of Israel in this way. Now why would Balaam do such a thing? And what did Jesus mean by the doctrine of Balaam? Well, we get a better idea from 2 Peter 2, verses 14 through 16. Peter there speaks of those whose hearts are trained in greed. And he makes reference to the way of Balaam who loved the wages of unrighteousness. And so apparently those offers that, that King Balak made to Balaam, they tempted Balaam and they in turn made him... Uh, give Balak this idea to, to tempt the children of Israel. Jude also makes mention of this. In Jude 11, speaking of false teachers, Jude says that they have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit. And so it was the love of money, and the greed for gain, that led Balaam to betray the Lord's people. He deliberately conspired against, and in essence, cursed the people that God had ordered him to bless. And for his greed and for his treachery, we read later in Joshua 13, verse 22, that he was killed by the Israelites in the days of Joshua. So ultimately, we see the high price of greed. 
Well, the next example of greed that we want to notice is that of a man named Gehazi, whose story is found in 2 Kings. Gehazi was a, a trusted servant of the prophet Elisha. When we first read of Gehazi in 2 Kings chapter 4, he is actually involved in Elisha's dealings with the Shunammite woman. Uh, you remember, remember that, that uh, as a reward for her kindness toward him, he, he said that she would have a son. And then that son later died, and he raised that son from the dead. Well, Gehazi is involved in all this, and nothing seems amiss in that story as far as Gehazi is concerned. Then we get to chapter 5 of 2 Kings and the story of Naaman. I think we all know that story very well. Naaman was a great commander in the army of the king of Syria. As the Bible says, he was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. And Naaman, of course, heard about a prophet in Israel who could heal him, And so he went to Israel with a letter from his king, along with ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. As we know, Elisha instructed Naaman to wash seven times in the Jordan River. First, Naaman balked a little bit, but but when he finally followed Elisha's instructions, of course, he came up out of that water the seventh time as clean as, as a child. Well, Naaman returned back to Elisha and and pronounced his faith in the God of Israel. And he begged Elisha to accept a gift. Remember all that gold and and silver and so forth that he had. But Elisha refused. And so Naaman departed. That's where Gehazi comes back in. Let's pick up there uh, in 2 Kings 5. And we'll read uh, beginning with verse 20. 2 Kings 5, beginning with verse 20. It says, But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, Look, my master has spared Naaman the Syrian while not receiving from his hands what he brought. But as the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. So Gehazi pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw him running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me, saying, Indeed, just now, two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the mountains of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of garments. So Naaman said, Please, take two talents. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of garments and handed them to two of his servants. And they carried them on ahead of him. When he came to the citadel, he took them from their hand and stored them away in the house. Then he let the men go, and they departed. Now he went in and stood before his master. Elisha said to him, Where did you go, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant did not go anywhere. And he said to him, Did not my heart go with you when the man turned back from his chariot to meet you? Is it time to receive money and to receive clothing, olive groves and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male and female servants? Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And he went out from his presence, less leprous, as white as snow. Once again, we see the high price Agree. We'll notice one more Old Testament example in the character of Achan. And his story is found in the book of Joshua. Uh, in chapter 6, God had helped Joshua, Joshua, you remember, take the city of Jericho. You remember how they marched around the wall one time for six days. And then on the seventh day, they marched around seven times and blew their trumpets, or the priests blew their trumpets, and the walls, as the song says, the wall came tumbling down. They destroyed everyone and everything in the city except for Rahab and her family. Uh, 
And then in verses 18 and 19 of Joshua 6, Joshua gave them a specific warning. He said, by all means, they must abstain from the accursed things. That is the things uh, that have been devoted to idolatry, the images of their uh, false gods. He said, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. Probably a little bit of foreshadowing there because in chapter 7, we find just that trouble. Joshua 7 verse 1 says, But the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things. So the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. When the army of Israel attacked next the city of Ai, much to their surprise, they were defeated, even though Ai uh, was a much smaller uh, population than them. In their retreat, 36 Israelite men died. It says The Bible says that the hearts of the people melted, according to verse 3. Joshua asks God why this had happened, and God informed him that there was sin in the camp. In Joshua 7 and verse 11, God says, Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant which I commanded them, for they have even taken some of the accursed things and have both stolen and deceived, and they have also put it among their own stuff. He instructs Joshua to bring the tribes before him the next day so that this disgraceful thing could be sorted out. And so the next morning, as all of Israel is brought before the Lord, the tribe, and then the family, and then the father, and finally the individual, Achan himself, is identified as the guilty party. Joshua tells him to confess. Listen to Achan's pitiful words found there in Joshua 7, verses 20 and 21. It says, And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I have done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. And there they are, hidden in the earth, in the midst of my tent, with the silver under it. You know, Achan's sin may have begun innocently enough uh, when he saw these spoils of war, but he allowed his covetousness, as he admitted, he allowed uh, his greed to degenerate into stealing and then to attempting to hide it from God, which of course he could not do. And as a result, Achan was taken out and stoned to death. So once again, we see the high price of greed. Well, next we'll turn to the New Testament and uh, notice an example of greed in the characters of Ananias and Sapphira. Their story is found in Acts, the fifth chapter. In the preceding verse, or rather the preceding chapter, Acts 4, we read how the infant church was, was flourishing despite persecution from the Jews. Peter and John had already been arrested. They had been forbidden to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. Of course, that just emboldened the apostles even more. The multitude of believers was also encouraged. It says in verse 32 there of Acts 4 that they were of one heart and one soul and they had all things in common. And Acts 4 verses 34 and 35 says, Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed to each as anyone had need. 
I think it's very important for us to point out here that as far as we can tell, these acts of generosity uh, by these early Christians were completely voluntary. There's nothing to suggest that the apostles commanded them to sell what they had. In fact, as we'll see in a moment, Peter plainly says to Ananias in Acts 5 and verse 4 that before the land was sold, it was his or he and his wife's to do with as they wished. And after it was sold, the money was in their control to do what they wished. The only factors that, that, was, that were urging these early Christians to sell and to give away all that they had was either their own personal devotion and love for one another or perhaps a bit of peer pressure. We'll get to that in just a moment. Chapter 4 ends with a, a positive example of someone who followed through with his generous donation in the per person of Barnabas. The last two verses there, 36 and 37 of Acts 4, tell us, And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is indeed the same Barnabas who would be a very important companion to Paul later on. But then we get to chapter 5. And chapter 5 seems to pick up where chapter 4 left off with another specific example of benevolence and generosity, except for one big difference. In verses 1 and 2 we read, But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. I've always wondered why Ananias and Sapphira sold their land in the first place. They didn't want to give it away. Why did they sell it? Again, this was voluntary. And maybe they sincerely did want to help their fellow Christians, at least in part. Maybe, as I suggested earlier, it was peer pressure. Everyone else was giving and they didn't want to look bad. In other words, maybe uh, it was all a show. Maybe they were mostly concerned with what their brethren thought about them. And, and that leads me to point out that you and I need to ask ourselves, why do we do the good that we do as Christians? Is it out of sincerity that we truly want to help others? Or is it all just a show? Are we really more concerned about what our brothers and sisters think about us? Well, regardless of their motives for selling and giving, Peter makes it very clear that keeping back part of the price of the land was not wrong. Let me say that again. The sin of Ananias and Sapphira was not that they kept back part of the money. And I suppose it could be true that they honestly needed part of that money, that they only kept what they needed to survive and they gave the rest. That's possible, but I don't think it's likely. Because if that was the case, then why would they lie about it? You see, that's what condemned them in the end. Peter plainly charges them with lying. Not only lying to the church, but lying to the Holy Spirit. And in very similar fashion to Achan, they tried to hide it from God. Their sin was lying, but I think it's very easy for us to conclude that what led them to lying was their greed, their love of money. Of course, you know what happened. As soon as Peter announced that Ananias had lied to God, he dropped dead. And a few hours later, his wife Sapphira came in. She didn't know what had happened. Peter gives her a chance to, to confess or to tell the truth. He asks her if the amount that they had given was the amount that the land had sold for. And in conspiracy with her husband, she too lied and said yes. Like her husband, she too 
fell dead. So once again, we see a high price of greed. Well, finally tonight, we'll end with perhaps the most infamous example of greed in Judas Iscariot. Of course, he was one of Jesus' own chosen apostles. He was an eyewitness to all of Jesus' miracles. He was an ear witness to all of Jesus' teachings. But yet, as we know, he betrayed Jesus and he assisted the conniving chief priests in arresting him, which eventually led to his crucifixion. In fact, when I say he assisted them, that, that's really an understatement to, because to be honest, it seems like the chief priests weren't getting too far. They were pretty much at their wit's end. They had tried on numerous occasions to arrest Jesus, but they were thwarted at every turn because they were afraid to start a riot due to Jesus' popularity. And then out of nowhere, it seems, Judas fell into their laps. One of Jesus' own disciples, and what might be perhaps the biggest understatement in the Bible, Luke 22 and 5 says that when Judas approached them and conferred with them about how he might betray Jesus, it says they were glad. Again, quite an understatement. And they agreed to give him money. You know, there have been many opinions shared as to what would bring Judas to do such a thing. I've read some say that he didn't have a choice because the Bible tells us that Satan entered Judas, according to Luke 22 and verse 3. And so perhaps it was Satan's doing and Judas was just a puppet. Uh, others have said that Judas actually had innocent motives, that he was only trying to force Jesus' hand and, and make him finally prove who he was and, and finally restore the kingdom of Israel back to its glory. I can't say for sure what Judas's motives were, but in John, the 12th chapter, we get a, a disturbing insight into Judas's heart that I think is pretty condemning evidence. After Mary had anointed the feet of Jesus with an expensive ointment, we read there in verses 4 through 6, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. Obviously, Judas was a lover of money and a victim of greed. And with those character traits revealed, then I would say a certain 30 pieces of silver provides some pretty strong evidence that his greed is what eventually led him to betray his master. Now, we know that he later regretted his betrayal when he saw that Jesus would be condemned. He returned to the chief priests and tried to undo his greedy deeds. He even threw the 30 pieces of silver on the temple floor. But unfortunately for Judas, instead of a, a godly sorrow that would lead him to repentance, he made matters even worse by hanging himself. So once again, we see the high price of greed. These are only five examples of the dangers of the love of money and, and being greedy uh, for gain. And I'm sure that we could probably think of more from the Bible. I'm sure that we can think of people in our own lives that we know who have succumbed to the sin of greed. And perhaps we can see the price that, that they and, and others around them have paid because of their greed. On the other hand, we also often see those who are wealthy from their greed uh, who seem to just get richer. But remember, treasures on this earth will eventually pass away. Jesus taught that 
he taught that we should lay up treasures in heaven. And to do that, that we must beware of the dangers of greed. He warned in Luke 12, verse 15, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And in 1 Corinthians 6, and verse 10, we're warned that those who are greedy will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so it's no surprise that Paul, when he listed the qualities that an elder of the church should have, that he included in that list that a man must not be a lover of money nor greedy for gain. And as we stated throughout our studies of those qualifications for an elder, that's not just a requirement of elders. It's a quality that every Christian should pursue. So I hope tonight we can learn from these examples that we've studied and we can learn to be on guard, as Jesus said, against the sin of greed. I hope that you've gained something from the study tonight. We never end a service without offering the gospel invitation. There's one here tonight who has never taken the steps of belief, repentance, confession, and baptism, and we encourage you to to do so tonight. If we can assist you uh, in prayer, we'd be glad to do so while we stand and while we sing.